I always say death is just one day. That's probably why I don't love the term death doula as much because I think we're end of life doulas. We walk people through life and prepare them for death. And it's then about getting all your stuff in order so that you can live well. So the end of your life can be the best possible journey that it can be. When I first saw Diane Button's article on being a death doula, I was intrigued. A death doula? I didn't even know the job existed. Now that I know, I am so glad it exists. What an important job to have a skilled and compassionate person whose expertise is helping people to take action on their legacy and to help resolve the unfinished business in their lives and relationships. In the article, Diane shared the lessons she learned about living from the dying. She calls them the wisdom keepers. Considering the name of this podcast is All the Wiser, we have a lot to learn from Diane and the wisdom keepers. So today on the show, Diane is going to share those lessons with you. And trust me, you are going to want to hear them. I'm Kimmy Culp, and this is All the Wiser, a show about hope and possibility on the other side of pain. Diane Button is a practicing end-of-life doula. She is a lead instructor at the University of Vermont's End-of-Life Doula Certificate Program and a founding partner at the Bay Area End-of-Life Doula Alliance. She is the author of the best-selling new book, Dear Death, Finding Meaning in Life, Peace in Death, and Joy in an Ordinary Day. We talk about how she got into this line of work, her advice on what to say when someone you know is going through something difficult, the six questions she asks every client, what really brings people joy in the end, and lastly, how to live well so you can die well. And now I bring you the wise and wonderful Diane Button. Hello, Diane, and welcome to All the Wiser. Thank you. Thanks for having me here. Dan, how would you introduce yourself? Well, it depends on who I'm talking to, but if I was talking to one of my peers, I would say I'm a death doula. If I'm talking to a lot of people out in the world, I might say I'm an end-of-life practitioner or an end-of-life doula. I'm also an instructor at the University of Vermont, so I, um, I teach an end-of-life course, so I might say I'm an educator. Um, I think sometimes when you, you use the word death, it it might scare some people away. So I try to be a little bit more gentle, but in truth, I'm a death doula. What is a death doula for people who don't know? A death doula is a companion to the dying and a support for their caregivers and loved ones. So we're completely non-medical. Hospice, doctors, that team, the nursing team, they take care of the medical side of end of life. And the doulas, we come in and we hold space for the spiritual, the practical, the emotional things that might be going on around end of life. And we just make ourselves available to have those hard conversations, to work through what might be coming up for our clients that is keeping them from feeling comfort and peace at the end of life. So before we dive in to what brought you to this work, and there's two 
really beautiful stories. Can you tell me a little bit about the backdrop of your life and and growing up, your origin story? Sure. I grew up in San Francisco and I was just had a pretty normal childhood and I started to go to college, but I actually had a bullet hole in my leg. When I turned 19, I got shot. It was an accident, but it kind of changed the direction of my life. And I went traveling and sort of seeking and spent a lot of years just kind of having some deep spiritual thoughts and existential moments before I came back around. And then I um, got involved in the travel business and I also opened a restaurant. So I owned a restaurant in Northern California for 10 years before I got into end of life work. So that's the nutshell. How did you end up being shot in the leg? It was an accident in my house. A gun went off actually in the garage and I was upstairs in my bedroom. So the bullet went through the garage ceiling and into my leg and then out into the wall. But it's those moments that make you pause and think about life and what's important. And that really shifted, I think, the entire direction of my life. Yes. So traumatic. And I imagine brought such a deep flood of emotion and thought and probably an early recognition of mortality. Yeah. I really hadn't ever linked those before just now, but you're right. And there would be two people in your life who would play a pivotal role in the work you're doing today and the conversation we're going to have today. So can you share with me those stories? Sure. The first story was the death of my grandfather. It was a very, very long journey, but the final day of his life was really where it all happened for me because I loved him so much. He was my hero. He was a plastic surgeon in California, and he specialized in treating burn victims. And I knew that he had seen some unimaginable pain and suffering and loss. And he was always very humble and calm and quiet. And he died, he was dying, and I was holding him in my arms and He let out his final breath and he smiled and he had this beautiful smile on his face, literally the most beautiful smile I'd ever seen on his face. And at that moment, it was kind of a magical moment because the windows were open and church bells rang and the breeze started blowing in. And and I just sat there and looked at his smile and it occurred to me that my grandfather lived in peace and he also died in peace. Then I started realizing that I hadn't asked him enough questions when he was alive. I didn't know him in that way, in the way that helped me to understand what brought him such peace. And so I started on my own quest about death, dying, life, living, existentialism, went back and got my master's in counseling and really kind of hit the road learning everything I could, going to classes and seminars to understand what a meaningful life looks like. So he started me on that path. Yeah, just evoked this, it sounds like a fire of curiosity within you. Absolutely. Absolutely. So 
along with living my everyday life, I wasn't working in death and dying at the time. I owned my restaurant when he died. And then another situation occurred. This was about three years after my grandfather died. I got a call from one of my really good friends, and he told me that his best friend's wife had just died. And I knew her and I knew him just a little bit because they'd eaten in the restaurant a few times. And he said, can you talk to him? And I felt quite uncomfortable about that because I wasn't really trained and that's a difficult conversation, but I did. And I met with him for lunch and he was in a deep, deep grief. And the background of the story is that he was very fortunate in life. He had a successful business. He was in the toy business and he had sold his business and he was married to his wife named Ronnie, who he just loved. They had a wonderful relationship and they had just found out that she was pregnant with triplets. And so they were living, you know, what they felt was the American dream and they were having the best time of their lives. And one day, suddenly she had a bad headache And it turned out to be a lot worse than a headache. Mark was called to the meeting place where she was, and he followed the ambulance to the hospital. And when he got there, he soon realized that she was having a brain aneurysm. And so she died, and the triplets died. And to make matters worse, Ronnie died on Mother's Day, which was the one day that she was so excited to celebrate. And so it was really a devastating time for Mark. And so when I met him, it was deep, deep grief. And I had to or chose to be with him in that grief. And so the first year of our relationship, and even many, many years after that, was really grounded in grief. And I learned so much because I learned that you can fall in love and you can grieve at the same time. You can hold two conflicting emotions. You can process pain and loss and suffering and still be open to new experiences and goodness and joy, you know? And so it was just beautiful and it was sad and it was hard. And Mark said it was the worst dating strategy he could ever imagine, (laughs) but it worked for us. And so here we are 20 something years later with three children of our own, but it was a real big turning point for me. And soon after that, I started volunteering in hospice and working more in the end of life field to get to where I am today. It's so clear how all of these early stories weave together on this path to get you where you were between the accident and your grandfather and Mark. It's really remarkable. Before we dive in to the work and the incredible wisdom that you have inherited from so many. There was another chapter in your personal life that was really pivotal to your work and your understanding, and that was having cancer. So I'd love for you to give me some context. Mm -hmm. I was 47 years old, and I had 
three small children. So they were seven, nine, and 11 at the time. And I found out I had breast cancer. So I had a double mastectomy and chemo and, you know, was a little scrawny, flat chested, bald headed, pimple faced, big belly mom to these three kids for about a year or so. And it was also a big part of my journey. It helped me understand what it feels like to be faced with the possibility of dying. It also motivated me to live. It motivated me to look at something beautiful every single day. And it motivated me to love well and to express my heart. And so many good things, and people say this often, that it was cancer was a gift or a certain illness was a gift. I look at it as an, it was an opportunity for me to understand how to live in the present moment and how to be true to my heart and how to share my heart with those that I care about. Yeah. I mean, I hear that a lot in this podcast that it's complex and layered, right? Because you don't want to minimize the pain and the suffering that comes with cancer or other illnesses or traumas that people endure, but they become these incredible teachers <laughs> and so transformative in people's lives in really meaningful ways. So that makes a lot of sense to me. Something beautiful came out of that, that you and your kids co-created, which was Special Delivery, a cookbook. Can you tell us about Special Delivery? Sure. It was really sweet because my children were young and they were scared. And the way that they translated that into action was that they wanted to cure breast cancer. It, they were so sweet. So they started putting up lemonade stands and started selling cookies and making cookies and making little art projects and selling them on the corner of our neighborhood for months and months. And they had finally ended up raising a couple thousand dollars that they went and actually took to the Breast Cancer Foundation in our town and, and dropped it off. And, and they wanted to keep going. And so when I had cancer, everyone was bringing me meals three times a week, sometimes four times a week. Someone would knock on the door, sometimes someone we didn't even know, which always made my husband cry, with a big tray of food and sometimes notes and flowers. And people were just so, so kind and good and really nurtured and cared for our family. So my kids kept wanting to raise money. So we had this idea where we collected all the recipes. We called everybody who'd brought us meals and asked if they wanted to submit the recipe they cooked for me and my family or one of their favorite recipes for the cookbook. And so we did that and we collected them and my daughter did the artwork for the book and we published it. And then the kids were able to now start selling the cookbooks. And so they sold them to friends and they sold them whenever we had a lemonade stand or whenever they wanted to go to the farmer's market, they would take a stack of books and that became a fundraising tool for them. And I think at a certain point, 
they realized they're not going to probably cure breast cancer. And they started working with other moms in our neighborhood who maybe were struggling with breast cancer or a family who was struggling with something else. And they would raise money for that family to be able to go somewhere for the weekend or, you know, just little projects in our community. So it really shifted and grew into something different over the years. You know, it's so interesting because, you know, food is love in that way. And I've seen it feels like a million times over in community. And whether it's having a baby or a sick child or a loss or a diagnosis, so often people cook and they bring people food. And it's, yeah, lots of casseroles happen. (laughs) Yeah. Same thing at the end of life. You know, it's food. It's how we nurture and show love. It's just what we do. I'm curious about that time you spoke about community and your husband tearing up when strangers would bring you gifts or the offering of love in, in the form of food. This notion of collective healing and also how we can show up and support people because so often people don't know what to do and they don't know what to say. So maybe they say nothing or pull away. What advice do you have when people are going through something difficult like cancer of what to say and do? Yeah, it's really difficult. And I think one of the things is just to remember that the person that you're approaching is heartbroken and they're grieving and there really is nothing that you can say or do that's going to take away their pain. So I think it's really about showing up, just show up and give, offer someone a hug. My husband, when his, when Ronnie died, he had so many books. He probably had 30 books that people had given him. A big stack was piling up at the door and He was saying a lot of times when people would come to see him, it was really about their grief and not his grief. And I really noticed that, that it was hard for Mark to to be there for all the people who were showing up with their grief. So I think for me, when I go and sit with somebody who's grieving, I just remember that I want to do whatever I can to minimize their grief. I don't want to add to it. So I think a gentle hug and it's okay to say, I'm so sorry for your loss or, you know, I'm here for you. One of the things that people often say is if there's anything I can do at all, let me know. And that's not always helpful because it's not specific, but we talk um, in the training at the University of Vermont about offering specific gestures to help. Would you like me to drive you to this meeting? Would you like me to go to the grocery store? Can I take your pet for a walk? Can I come in and do your laundry? I mean, specific offers of support seem to be a lot more helpful than just a generic, I'm here for you. Let me know if there's anything I can do. Yeah. So Nora McInerney was on the podcast and she gave that specificity as well um, when her husband and father died within weeks. Because the asking of what can I do to help sort of puts it on the person. It was the friends who said, I'll drive your son to school next week. Pick him up, (laughs) you know, who just sort of dove in there. So I love that. Yeah. I'm curious about the process. How do you become connected to a person in a family? What does that look like? 
Yeah, it's actually an emerging field. And a lot of people don't know about death doulas, end of life doulas, but it is getting more and more common. And it is a huge word of mouth thing right now, because once someone has a doula, the family remembers it. And a lot of our calls now are from other clients. But basically, we do have a directory, a U.S. directory in a couple places. There's a National End of Life Doula Alliance, and it it lists doulas so you can find doulas in your area. But we also link up with hospices. We do community outreach. We do advanced directive sessions with people. So it doesn't mean that people have to call a doula because they have a terminal diagnosis or a limited amount of time to live. They can call us to start preparing for the end of life. That's what it's really all about is being ready to die and doing your work during your everyday life, whether you're 20, 40, 60, or 80, doing the work so that if you did happen to die, you would be prepared. So what does that look like? And that's really what our work is all about. Because I always say death is just one day. That's probably why I don't love the term death doula as much, because I think we're end of life doulas. We walk people through life and prepare them for death. And it's then about getting all your stuff in order so that you can live well. So the end of your life can be the best possible journey that it can be. Is it normally the individual person who reaches out to you or a family member? It depends. It's it's both. Oftentimes, the family uh, member will call on someone's behalf, but we always have a conversation with the client as soon as possible because they're the ones that we're going to be working with ultimately. And they need to have the willingness to be working with an end-of-life doula as well. Sometimes we work with family members on just how to have difficult conversations and such, but it's really the client's journey and we want to we want to get to know every client. So when when you have a client, a person who you're going to be working with, I know you have this set of questions to really I see it as almost diving into their heart and soul. Tell me about that. Sure. Well, This set of questions that I use has been distilled down from when I first started working with people at end of life about 15 years ago. And I used to step into somebody's house with a hundred questions, but I've come to realize that when someone's facing the end of life and you introduce new people with a lot of questions, it takes time, it takes energy, and it takes away from their ability to be with those they love. So I try to be more efficient with my time when I'm with clients, but I still want to know what's going on for them. So instead of asking them if they slept well and how are their doctor's appointments and how things are going with the family, I have distilled it down to these six questions that I ask in not in a super direct way, but I want to make sure that I know what is worrying them. That's the main question. Because if I can find out what a client is thinking about when they're laying awake in bed at night, then I have a pretty good idea of where the work needs to happen. They might be worrying about a spiritual thing. They might be worried about a spouse or a partner or a family member or a friendship that hasn't healed, or they might be worried about a medical appointment or pain and suffering or something that might 
have to do with the actual dying day. So I want to know what's worrying them. That's the most important question for me to understand what I need to do with them. But I also want to know what's bringing them joy, because if I know what's bringing them joy, then let's focus on that and let's make sure that whatever days you have left to live can be as joyful as possible. And then in some form, I always want to know what's most important to them right now. What matters most? I want to know who matters most. Who are the people that they want in the room with them? Who are the people they need to see before they die? Who are the people that maybe need a phone call because they haven't reached out and talked to somebody in years and years that they're thinking about? And then I want to know what matters most. What is most important for this client to talk about, to do, What needs to happen? What's most important to them to get ready for the end of their life? And I want to know who matters most. I want to know who are the people that are in their constellation that really matters. And with that question goes, what's left unsaid? Is there anything left that they still need to reach out and say to anybody? Because then that's a blank slate. I'm actually starting to do that on myself every month. I ask myself at the end of the month those six questions. You know, who matters most? What matters most? What is left unsaid? What is left undone? What am I worrying about at night? And what's bringing me joy? Because it's sort of like an emotional detox. I'm starting to realize I can ask myself those questions and I can keep doing my work. And that's part of how I prepare for my own end of life. Coming up. Diane shares some common themes she hears from her clients, both about regrets and also the joys. We'll be right back after this short break. But before we break, I want to remind you to join our All the Wiser community Facebook page. We started this page so you can join in conversation with other folks like you, the people in this community. You can also interact with us We would love to see you there. Hear your thoughts on these episodes or any episodes you'd like to hear in the future. You can find a link to our Facebook page in the show notes or just do a quick search for All the Wiser Community. See you there. All the Wiser is a one-for-one podcast. For every episode you hear, we donate $2,000 to our guest's favorite charity. The charity Diane chose to support is the Humane Prison Hospice Project. Their mission is to transform the way that prisoners die. By training those who are incarcerated to provide emotional support and hands-on care for their dying friends behind bars. How cool is that? You can find out more about their work at humaneprisonhospiceproject.org. Some of the common themes that you see and both the regrets and the joys, what are some of the common regrets as people look back at their time here on earth? Most of the regrets have to do with time. I think that when you get to the end of your life, you look at how you lived and spent your time. So one is people work too much. They didn't spend time with their loved ones. They didn't 
complete the dreams, their goals, their passions. They didn't learn how to sew or they didn't travel. You know, it's a lot about how they chose to spend their time. The other regret that I see the most is really about relationships, not healing, holding on to things for years, decades, half a century, holding on to something that really was perhaps more painful for them to hold on to than it was for the person that maybe wronged them or that they didn't say they were sorry to. So it's those regrets of not healing something that needed to be healed. Are there some examples of witnessing that repair in a relationship? If you think about decades of pain and distance and that I imagine you have observed these moments, right, of allowing both people to release that. It's interesting because when people are dying and they've been sick for a while and they might be in their 70s and 80s, as a lot of my clients are, sometimes the person that they had a conflict with is dead or not able to be reached or they've lost contact. And so sometimes we write letters or we you know, write a note and wrap it around a rock and throw it in a river. We'll do some kind of a ritual around letting go and around forgiveness. But there are times when people do reach out. And a lot of times with my clients, it's an immediate family member. More often than not, it's a estranged child or uh, somebody close to them that is alive that they haven't spoken to in a long time. So I love the opportunity to try to facilitate healing in those types of relationships. And I've witnessed it dozens of times, but I've also witnessed that sometimes it's not possible. So if I have a client, which I had recently, whose child is not interested in speaking to them, then we have to do other things. So we wrote a letter to that child that she asked me to deliver after she died, and I did. And so there's different ways. Everybody's story is different. Every need and scenario is different. And one of the things that's kind of lighthearted and sweet about the work is that a lot of times people are holding on to really simple things. Like I talked about in the book about a woman who stole somebody's lunch. She used to take the sandwich that her mom packed her in her hard metal lunchbox, and she would switch it with somebody else's sandwich. And she did that for a long, long time, and she never got caught, and she felt guilty. And this was something like 65 years after she did that. And the funny part was we were able to reach out to that classmate who was still alive, and she was able to tell that person what she did, and that she was sorry. And he wrote her back a really funny note and said, I didn't like that kind of sandwich anyway, which was (laughs) hilarious. So you never know what you're going to get, but it's always worth it to try to heal somebody's pain and suffering when it has to do with relationships. No matter how insignificant it sounds, it's important to them. I'm glad you brought up that example and the for lack of a better word, the smallness and simplicity to it on its surface, because simplicity seems to be one of the great wisdoms. Kate Bowler, who I love her podcast, Everything Happens, she talks about, you know, all the minutes that make up a life and all the little moments, like just the glimpses of the everyday precious. 
So can you speak to both simplicity and, and what people reflect on when it comes to simplicity? Yeah, I think that a lot of the stories I hear are about people who accumulated too many possessions. So they're burdened by their things at the end of life. They become obstacles to peace and they feel all of a sudden urgent about having to lighten their load. But a lot of that comes with regret. A lot of conversations are around all this stuff that people felt that they needed to have. And I've had clients, one in particular, told me that he missed it. I missed my entire life because I was so busy grabbing these fancy cars and going on these exotic vacations and accumulating things in my house and art. And I just missed it. I didn't even pause to appreciate anything that I accumulated because I was on this fast track for more. And he was really regretting that he compromised time spent with other people and time enjoying the simplicity of an ordinary day in exchange for these grandiose adventures and these giant things that were actually, in retrospect, meaningless to him. And he felt like he was accumulating them for external pleasure and for other people noticing him rather than giving him anything of internal value whatsoever. So he taught me about simplicity when it comes to material possessions, but the dying also teach me about the simplicity of an ordinary day. Because a lot of times the dying aren't out busy from 7 a.m. till 9 p.m. checking all these things off their list. Their list and their world is shrinking into this very beautiful place. And they might go outside and water their plants and really look at their plants. And they might spend 20 minutes petting their dog and really spending time looking at their dog and being there in the moment. And a lot of the times I'll give my clients an exercise of just pausing once or twice a day for a full minute and just looking at something. It could be anything, but just look at it and take it in because we miss the beauty of an ordinary day. Even when we recap our lives and we do a life review with a client, it will start off that the big moments are milestones weddings, birthdays, deaths, anniversaries, vacations to exotic places. Then when you really peel away what brings you joy, people aren't saying the exotic vacation is joy. That's not joy. Or the wedding, it was great and it was fun. But what really brings me joy is that cup of coffee on my porch in the morning or that friend who comes by, or that hummingbird that comes to my house every day, you know, and those are the moments. And that is a great gift to know that. And what I love about the wisdom keepers is they, they are teaching us how to live through their dying process. And we can be any age and we can take their knowledge and apply it to our lives in a way that helps us to be more present so that we really are prepared to die at any time, which I think is amazing. And I want to talk about two practices. You just mentioned the life review. What is a life review? And if you have some examples of real people's reviews that, that you're comfortable sharing. 
Sure. One client I recently did a life review with, we broke her life down to decades. She really wanted to think about all the memories. She wanted to remember all the people she met in her life. She wanted to think about people who touched her life, like the postman that she talked to every day, not just her core, her constellation of people. And she wanted to remember the moments and the homes she lived in. So we spent many, many sessions. We did this during COVID. And so we spent many sessions. We do her early years, we do her 20s, her 30s, and it might be two meetings for each decade. And I would give her assignments to draw her house when she was a child and, you know, things like that, or remember an outfit that she loved to wear. And that just triggered her memory. And we just had so much fun going through her entire life. And a life review, it's designed to be a joyful walk down memory lane for some people. But for some people, not everybody had a life that was all happy and upbeat. And most people have a life of ups and downs where they have, you know, highs and lows and certain times of their life that they didn't enjoy as much. And in the life review with this woman, for example, there was an opportunity to revisit the good. And there was also an opportunity to heal and talk through and process some of what we call unfinished business, regret, guilt, times where there might have been shame that she was holding on to still in her 90s. And so that's what a life review generally is. Sometimes it's a lot shorter where you might just go over a person's high points, but try to talk through with them to get to a place to think about what needs to be done. And a lot of it is determined by how much time we have with a client. Sometimes we're called when a client only has seven days or 14 days left to live, and we have to do some quick work. And then other times we have years. And so it depends on how deep we can dig. But that's what a life review is. It's it's just a going over of your life to explore maybe some things that have been left unsaid and left undone that we can still work with. Legacy work is another big piece of what you do. And I want to talk to you about our societal collective (laughs) resistance, fear of talking about death and dying and the fears so much of us innately have. And one of the things you said is, people are afraid of being forgotten. And that one way or the other, whether we choose to think about it or not, we all will have a legacy. So tell me about that fear, the fear of being forgotten, and the work of a legacy project. The work of a legacy project is twofold. It's tangible in that you can actually do a project. You can paint a picture, write a letter, create a recipe book of your favorite recipes of your lifetime. It is a tangible project that we often do that our clients can leave for their loved ones after they die. So what's an example? Okay. So I have had several legacy projects that involve what is already in someone's house. Because a lot of times when I do legacy work... People are bed bound or they're sick and they don't really want to go out and create something at an art studio or something like that. So I like to look around the house and see what's there. 
And what I realize is that most people have things that they really love in their house, a certain sweater, a certain piece of art, a certain something that's sitting on a shelf that tells a story of an experience that they've had in their past. So what I like to do with a client is I like to talk about all the people that they'd like to leave something to as part of their legacy to help that person remember them. And then we'll go through the house and we will just collect objects. And I tell a story of the most recent one that I did with a client who we went through the house and we collected a pair of ballet slippers and we collected a bunch of calligraphy that she had created with some quotes on it and some art. And we collected some postcards and photographs from a trip. And we collected a lot of gifts from her kitchen and from her little condo because she'd already downsized from one size place to a smaller place. So these were her very valuable things that she had with her. And she loved hats and scarves and she was very colorful. And so we collected some of those. And we then got together one time after several sessions of collecting everything and talking about them. And we wrapped them and we made cards for the people that she was going to leave them to. And that is legacy work and life review combined because the legacy is these gifts that she's giving to people who she loves. But then it kind of becomes life review because we're talking, who was this person? What did this person mean to you? Why did you pick this gift for them? And let's write a card. What do you want to say to this person so that they remember you? What are the words that you want to share from your heart for this person? And then we'll have these gifts already. And so when the client dies, or maybe before if the client wants to, we will pass them out to their loved ones. And I think it's a beautiful way of keeping my clients really active and involved and positive and upbeat and doing something productive with what already exists. Because really your legacy, it, it's from your past, it's your life, it's, it's everything, it's your story. We're all going to leave a legacy no matter what. And so being able to consciously consider your legacy helps us live a meaningful life and is also a great way of creating projects at the end. Yeah, I mean, I can only imagine the introspection on how you'll be remembered and wrestling with so many aspects of that. It's true. It's interesting because I had done a thesis when I graduated from my master's program, and it was called The Components of a Meaningful Life, which got me really interested in understanding that dying well means living well. I mean, that's where that all came from. And one of the pillars of a meaningful life that I knew would be important and I thought would be the most important was love and relationships because it's so obvious. You know, when we die, we usually want people surrounding us at the bedside. We want to say goodbye to people. But I think it was equally important with the people who I interviewed who were, were all in their 70s and 80s for this thesis that the fact that they wanted their life to matter, they wanted to know they made a difference. They wanted to be able to leave this world a better place than they found it. That was a huge, huge part of feeling peace at the end of life. And I think that's something that we can all take with us in our lives every day because it's really not about building wings in hospitals and donating massive amounts of money. It's about everyday simple acts of kindness you know, was the world a better place because you were here? Well, were you kind? 
Did you smile? Did you say thank you? Did you show gratitude and appreciation? It's simple things. And that's really part of what the wisdom of the dying have taught me is that it's moment by moment doing the right thing and being kind. You don't have to have a lot of money. You don't have to even have a lot of time. You just have to be aware of when you can do the right thing because that's going to be how people remember you by the little things too. What have you experienced as far as the role of spirituality and faith and people in their last days, week, months of life? What I've learned is that your religion or your spiritual path or what you believe is really important, especially at the very, very end of life, because that is when oftentimes your world is closing in and you you really do start maybe not leaving your house, then not leaving your bedroom, then not leaving your bed. And your world does start shrinking as you start closing down. And this can happen over a period of days, months, whatever. But once you start becoming internal, if you don't have a sense of peace with your spiritual beliefs, it can cause agitation at the end of life. I always try to have a spiritual conversation with my clients. I don't care what they believe. I don't care if they're atheist, agnostic. I don't care what their spiritual practices or their religion is. But what I care about is that they're at peace with whatever they believe, because I've seen what it looks like when someone isn't. And it can really be frightening for people. So I think that that's really what what my bottom line is, is just know what you believe and be comfortable with it. And if you have any questions, especially at the end of life, talk it through. You know, I've in preparing for this, I've listened to your interviews and researched your work and you do a wonderful job of the transparency of it can be ugly, it can be messy, it can be scary, all these things. So I didn't want to have this conversation without addressing that. But also I was curious, we've talked a lot about the person who's dying, but we haven't talked about the people around them, the people who love them. Do you find that the person dying or the loved ones have a harder time with the process? It depends because oftentimes these people who call us, especially if the client calls us, they want to have these conversations. That's why they called an end-of-life doula, because they want to plan, they want to prepare, they want to be ready. So sometimes the family members bring an added layer of dynamic that isn't easy for the dying person. So we really do pay attention to everybody in the room. I always say to my students, to zoom out, you know, and take it all in. Don't think that you're there any particular day for any particular reason. So when I knock on the door of somebody's home, I don't have an agenda. I might have a thought that, oh, today we're going to do a legacy project, or today we're going to talk about a vigil plan, which is what happens on the final days of life and how they want that to be. I might think that's what I'm going to do. But when I knock on that door, I'm also open to whatever emotions are in the room on the other side, whatever stories and circumstances are coming up 
on the other side. Because a lot of times it isn't what you expect it to be. A lot of times the family members are bringing an added layer of struggle or a certain emotion that makes it really difficult for the person who's dying because then they're trying to tend to somebody else. So I look at us as the outside of the ring. There's the dying person in the center of the ring and then their immediate loved ones and then maybe another circle of friends and community and maybe another circle of caregivers who have gotten close to the family And I consider us as like a big giant hug. You know, let's take in everybody who's in this constellation of caring and loving this person and make sure everybody's emotions and needs are tended to because that's the best gift we can give the dying. What is um, a vigil plan? I heard you just say that. What is a vigil plan? A vigil plan is when we sit with a client to talk about what they want in their final day or days of life. So people start transitioning and then maybe they're not speaking and they're not eating and they're just, they're going to die and we're seeing all the signs of death. Some people like to listen to certain music. Some people might want poems or scriptures or some spiritual readings read to them. Some people might want to be in a certain room. We will set the environment We'll ask if they want candles, flowers. Do they want to have people coming and going? Do they want short visits? Do they want to wear something in particular? Um, We talk through everything so that they have as much control as they can over the environment that they're in at the end of life. We want to make sure that if they have some favorite classical music, which we're going to be doing with a client that we have vigiling tomorrow, um, there we're, we'll be playing the music that they want. And this person doesn't want candles and she doesn't want people in the room for long periods of time, but she wants to see everybody. And some people want to be touched and some people don't. And so we ask the questions so we know. So we're anticipating that this day is going to come. So we put a plan in place for that day. Wow. And are you assisting with the post-death funeral and working with them on that as well? Well, there are legal parameters. So there are some things we can't do. We're not a funeral industry worker, but we can wash the person's body after they die or do a ritual or some kind of blessing with oils or that kind of thing if the family wants to or if the client That would be part of their vigil plan, actually. And then what we do is then we'll call hospice because most of the people that we work with are on hospice. The hospice nurse will come and pronounce the body, and we stay with the client until the mortuary comes and takes them. Because my experience is that a lot of people don't like to to be there when the mortuary comes and takes the person. And it just, it's an imprint. I always think that that's the last memory that the loved ones are going to have of the client. So I prefer to see that and make sure that, that my client's handled with gentleness and care when the mortuary comes. And I will follow the mortuary out until the body is put in the car and drive away. And then I'll come back and check in on the family before I leave. And then some doulas are doing celebrations of life and memorial planning. Absolutely, that's part of what we do. A lot of times we're involved in the funeral and attending. And sometimes I'll read a letter that I wrote with the client 
maybe dictated it to me because a lot of times people can't write and I'll work on that with the client and sometimes I'll read it at a memorial. So we get involved in whatever level the the client and family want us to afterwards. It's really unbelievable hearing you talk about this because it's as if you're almost the entire arc of the story of someone's life between the life review and the vigil planning and the celebration or the gathering. I mean, truly the whole breadth of it in such an intentional, thoughtful way, an honest way about the the hard relationships, the repair, or sometimes the repair that can't happen in the way that you wished. It's really, really remarkable. It's such a privilege. Yeah. You talk about your work with joy and that it's a privilege and it's a gift. And I think many people listening, even when you just shared that you're with the body after and following the mortuary would say, how do you handle the darkness? How are you not, my guess is some people would even say traumatized. So so how do you answer that question? I have a few answers to that question. Self-care is really important in our work. And I work in the San Francisco Bay Area with a group of doulas. And so we support each other. A lot of times we work together with a client, especially if it's a sensitive situation. So we'll go into a home with two of us so that we can be there together and we process afterwards with each other. So that's very, very helpful. I find the work to be joyful in that when, even if it's sad, even if there's tears, even if it's heartbreaking and sad, I feel that it's a contribution to the goodness of the experience. In other words, it's yes, it's sad and it's challenging sometimes, but if I can be the calmest person in the room and if I can bring peace and a sense of a place to go if somebody needs to be held or somebody needs to say something, then I feel like I'm adding a layer of goodness to a very difficult situation. I have not been traumatized before. I have woken up feeling sad for a partner who I know is probably also up not sleeping because they were having such a hard time when I left. And, you know, it is hard work in that way, but it's so beautiful. I mean, what what we're really talking about here is how every single person, whether it's the person dying or a family member that I work with, teaches me something because it's when people are dying, it's very raw. It's very real. It's truth. There's no time for stuff that isn't important. And so like to me, looking into a dying person's eyes is like looking into the bottom of the ocean. I mean, you just see clarity and truth there. And so to me, that is why I see it as such an honor. And I realize that there's a lot of emotions bouncing all over, but for some reason, doulas are equipped with a heart that can take the grief and hold it, but not carry it so that we don't go out in the world feeling awful for someone else's story. You know, that's not my story. That's their story. I'm just a companion on their journey. And that's how I process things. I don't hold on to them and I definitely don't carry them because they're not mine to carry. Why do you think as a society, 
were so afraid of this incredibly natural thing that every human being on the planet has in common. I mean, even the just mentioning it, talking about it. I mean, I imagine there'll be some people who will feel nervous to listen to this conversation. Yeah, we always joke about when we go to a dinner party or something and someone asks us what we do and they just kind of walk away, you know, it's like, (laughs) okay, I'll go find somebody else. But I think that we have really institutionalized and medicalized death in our society, in our country, in many places in the world as well, to the point where the dying are those people, you know, they're not part of our everyday world. If you think back over generations where I think we were all death doulas, we were taking in our family members or we all lived together in generational homes. So when the grandfather was dying, the grandchildren were in the house and they were part of it. And over time, we've changed death and dying to be something that we don't want to deal with. And so we don't address it every day and we do our best to push it aside. And also there's so much medicine these days that just keeps people alive longer and longer and longer. So a lot of people just kind of don't take in the fact that it's going to happen to them. That's interesting. So technology and medicine are, yes, that makes sense. Yeah. I just think it, it makes our lifespan seems so long and so far out. I mean, I read something recently that pretty soon people are going to be living to be 120, kind of no big deal to make it to 120. But then we wonder, oh, is that going to happen to people who are 30 now? Oh, I don't now have to worry about thinking about death and dying till I'm 110 now. I mean, that's what's kind of happened to us because people used to die when they were 50 and a lot younger than they do now. So we really push it away. And the truth about it is, I've come to believe you don't have to think about dying and death. You just have to think about living well. Because if you're living well and you're living with meaning and purpose, intention, you know, a solid spiritual foundation, whatever that means for you, and you're doing your work every day, you don't have to think about death and dying. I mean, it's great for the people who are now starting to wake up and realize, wait a minute, I am going to die someday. I want to be ready. And it's been beautiful. One of the positive parts of COVID is that younger people are reaching out to doulas. People in their 30s and 40s are wanting to do advanced directives because they saw people die suddenly and who didn't get a chance to say goodbye, who didn't get a chance to say thank you or I'm sorry or I love you. So it's really woken up a broader range of people, which is really exciting for our work because truly people did die of all ages suddenly and people saw that. So I'm grateful for that. And I think that the idea of what you do every day in your life to live well, you know, to die in peace, you need to live in peace. To die in harmony with all beings, you need to live in harmony with all beings. To to die without regrets, then live without regrets or working through your regrets. You know, it's all about what we do in our day-to-day living that prepares us for dying well. From the gift of the wisdom keepers passed on to you, 
Is there one call to action or piece of advice you want to leave listeners with? There's so many lessons, but the one that's coming to my mind is just the word pause. Because I think we're running through our life so, so fast. And one of the hardest clients for me just hit a wall after going through life at rapid warp speed only to get a diagnosis and have only a few weeks left to live. And that word pause has come up several times in the last few weeks. And I would just say, if we could all slow down a little bit, find something beautiful to look at for one minute every day. It doesn't have to be long periods of pausing, but just pause and check in with yourself. Ask yourself how you're feeling. Is What's your environment feeling like? Is there anybody in your space who needs to hear something? Just slow down because I think we're missing it by being on this fast track. Yeah. All of those precious real moments that make up our lives. The ordinary day. Yeah. Dan, thank you so much. You are certainly a gift in this world and to today a gift to our listeners. And I'm so grateful to know you. Thank you. So nice to meet you too. Thank you for listening to my conversation with Diane Button. I hope you loved listening as much as I loved making this episode. I am so intrigued by Diane and drawn to her incredible work. You can learn more about everything we talked about today and dive even deeper with Diane's book, Dear Death, and the companion workbook, which I personally think could be incredibly helpful for anybody who is caretaking or caregiving right now. Both are available on Amazon, and the link is in our show notes. I hope you'll check it out, and we'll be back next week with A Little Wiser to discuss this episode and more. This has been All the Wiser, produced by Erica Gerard of Podkit Productions. Our associate producer continues to be the excellent Tara Daigle. And our editor and composer is John LaSala, who's not half bad himself. And of course, our host is Kimmy Culp. And I get to do the sign-off this week. So until next time, take care of yourself and each other. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co.